0: Good morning, everybody. I feel so much better. (laughs) It's weird to not preach sitting down, though. I sort of got used to that. All right, so as we jump into the text today, we're going to try to unpack the second half of John 14 after we started chapter 14 last week, as Pastor Mike taught us. And there's a lot of verses. There's a lot to unpack. But one of the things I want you to do before we jump into this is I want you to turn to your neighbor, and here's what I want you to say. I want you to say, this passage is not for you. (laughs) Now, what I want you to say to your neighbor is, this passage is for me. All right? And here's one of the reasons I have you do that, because a lot of times, if we're honest, we listen to sermons for somebody else. Oh, that's good. Oh, my husband needed to hear that. Why wasn't he here? You know, that kind of thing. That's not what we're doing today. This passage is for you. i got to be honest. I think of you when sermons are written. When we're writing the sermons, God is bringing to mind different people within the body. What do they need to hear while interpreting the text correctly? And so I'm thinking about you guys, and Mike, I know, does the same as we're teaching these texts. So I'm excited to try to unpack the second half of 14, where Jesus spends his time comforting his disciples by the explanation... Of Him sending the Holy Spirit to His disciples. I want to begin by saying the Holy Spirit is the third person of the triune God. The word that is used in Christian understanding is Trinity, aka Trinity. He is just that, a He. He is how He is referred to in Scripture. He has always been. He is part of the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he is not an it, he is not a thing or a power or an influence as to lower his deity. He is the third person of the triune God. The Holy Spirit is God. And when we talk about the Trinity, I think it's important for us to also talk about heaven. Because often we miss that heaven is not just a place, is not just a destination. Heaven is about a relationship one with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where this relationship in heaven, in eternal life, in eternity forever, is completed and fulfilled. It is this perfect relationship we get to have with God. If we view eternity in heaven and eternal life like that, we can really start to see who the Holy Spirit is and what he is in this life, which is many different names. There are different names, the advocate, the counselor, the comforter, but he is also known as our down payment of our future guarantee, which is an eternity with God in three persons for eternity with us in him forever and ever. Amen. Can you tell I'm pretty excited about this? So now let's look at Jesus's words as he speaks to his disciples and is going to both encourage and equip them for what is to come. He says in verse 15, if you love me, keep my commands. Wow. So profound and yet so simple. Jesus says to his disciples, if you love me, you keep what I say. You keep my commands. If you are mine, you do what I say. I think when we read this, we think it's punitive. As if God says, in order to prove to me that you love me, you must obey me. And yet I don't read it that way. I believe that because we love him, we want to obey him. Do you see the simple difference? We want to obey him because we love him. See, let me say it this way. Love is the motive And obedience is the action. Not the other way around as religion would teach. Love is the motivating factor to everything we do for God because we are in relationship. We, when we are trusting and obeying God, we are practicing heaven. We are practicing our perfect relationship with God that is promised to us and sealed by the Holy Spirit. Because God has gifted us His Spirit to make us holy. Hence, Holy Spirit. To be comforted to be equipped through relationship with God to obey him more and more to apply obey and practice God's word in our lives this is something the spirit does in us in first john chapter 5 verses 1 through 3 the disciple whom jesus loves as he writes to the early church he says everyone who believes that jesus is the christ is born of god and everyone who loves the father loves his child as well this is how we know that we love the children of god by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, verse 3, this is love for God to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. Everyone who believes will obey, and yet you don't obey to prove that you believe that you love God or believe that, you, that he exists. You obey because you love him. So verse 16, here's how, how Jesus continues. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate To help you and be with you forever. Verse 17, first part, the spirit of truth. Here's one of the things I I want you to take away today that I so appreciate. One of the things I appreciate about God is that he doesn't ask anything of us that he can't do in us. He doesn't ask anything of us that he can't do in us. And Jesus says he will ask the Father, which is yet another instance where Jesus is submissive to the Father. Because he knows that all he is doing is to please and obey the Father because love is the motive and obedience is the action. So Jesus asked the Father to give in Jesus' absence the advocate. The word in Greek is the parakletos. It's the advocate, it's the helper, it's the assistant. Now before you think, sweet, God gives me a person to do all my work for me. That's not what the Spirit does. No, he empowers, he equips And he brings to remembrance God's will revealed in God's word written by the Holy Spirit so we can obey him out of love. Jesus says that the Spirit will be a helper. He will be with his disciples forever. And the Spirit is a spirit of truth. I don't want us to miss how incredibly vital the Holy Spirit is to our Christian walk. I don't want us to miss this. In fact, let me say it a different way. We do not have a Christian walk, a Christ-centered life, redemption, spiritual eyes to see, a continued grasp of the gospel without the Holy Spirit. We know from Ephesians 1 that He is the deposit guaranteeing our future salvation, but He is also the empowerer, I'm making up words, that makes it possible to want Christ, to obey Christ, to love God, and to love others. It's as if the Holy Spirit's incredibly important because He's God. And in a day and age where we are really good at going to either extreme, did you know churches go to extremes? I know this is shocking to all of you. We don't live in the tension, unfortunately the christian community seems to either only emphasize the holy spirit as more of a feeling that personally taps believers on their spiritual shoulder or we become so fundamental that because of the over other i'm sorry the overemphasis of the spirit that we see in some christian traditions we lock him away in a spiritual attic under excuse that we don't want people to misunderstand him listen the holy spirit is one of the things that many of us don't understand Okay? Can, can I be real with you? Like I don't want to lie to you while I'm preaching. Is that okay? Can I be real? I'm a pastor. I've studied the Bible's Bible Bibles. The Bible for years like it's no, never mind. The Bible for years. I have been in more worship services than I can count. I have read books of other spirit-filled believers writing about their understanding of the Holy Spirit. I've experienced things that maybe could have been the Holy Spirit, but because I cannot confirm it through the word, I don't feel at liberty to say that was definitely God just because it was a cool experience. But I gotta be real. I don't always understand everything about the Holy Spirit. Am I alone? Hallelujah, I got them witnesses. But even though I don't understand everything about the Holy Spirit, even with that admission, I also want to be honest that I not only believe in the Holy Spirit, but I believe the Holy Spirit based on what he says about himself. So in your bulletin, there are a lot of verses. All right, and you guys are thinking, how long are we going to be here? Six and a half months. I'm just going to keep preaching. I got water. We'll take breaks for the bathroom, but I'm going to be preaching a while. I'm just kidding. In 25, 30? two minutes, I'll be done. But even though I believe in the Holy Spirit, I believe specifically what he says about himself. So in your bulletin, you see a lot of verses from Isaiah 63 all the way down to Galatians 3.2. And if you have a bulletin, I want you to circle those verses because I'm about to go through them and we're going to do something with them a little bit later. Isaiah 63.10 all the way down to Galatians 3.2 in the bulletin. Here's what The Holy Spirit in the Word of God revealed by the Spirit of God writes. The Holy Spirit is a person, Isaiah 63.10. The Holy Spirit can be blasphemed, Matthew 12, 31. The Holy Spirit can be resisted, Acts 7, 51. He can be grieved, Ephesians 4:30. The Holy Spirit is good and instructs his people. Nehemiah 9:20. He is a counselor who is truth that testifies about Jesus. John 15, 26. The Holy Spirit communicates in and through his word. Acts 13:2. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses and intercedes to God the Father on our behalf. Romans 8, 26 and 27. He gives gifts to the body of believers for the benefit of the church to show off Jesus as He sees fit 1 Corinthians 12, 11. The Holy Spirit was active in the incarnation of Christ, being born of a virgin, Luke 1, 35. The Holy Spirit was present with the Father and the Son at Jesus' baptism, Matthew three sixteen. The Holy Spirit was present and active as the world was being creative, Genesis 1, 2. The Holy Spirit invites people to come to God, Revelation twenty two seventeen. The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, Luke 4, 1. The Holy Spirit dominated Peter as he preached the truth about Jesus to thousands of onlookers, Acts two, four, and fourteen. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, John sixteen, eight, and the Holy Spirit is received by believing that Jesus is Lord, Galatians three, two. As if the Holy Spirit's really important. That is just a few verses where the Holy Spirit speaks about Himself in the Word of God, and so there was this quote that I used to use. I thought Francis Chan said it, but I couldn't find that he said it, so it's mine now. Here's what it is. If the Holy Spirit left us, would we even notice? If you think about that, about being part of the church of God and being indwelled with the Holy Spirit, would we even notice? He can't leave us if we've we've received him, but if he left, would we even notice? Would anything in our lives change? A.W. Tozer, a great theologian, put it this way, and I think it makes a lot more sense. If the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today 95% of what we do or what we would what we do would go on and no one would know the difference if the holy spirit had been withdrawn from the new testament church 95% of what they did would stop and everyone would know the difference now you know that all statistics are true because abraham lincoln said that on the internet but here's what i know that this feels right Because you read through the book of Acts and you see a people that know that Jesus lived, that he died, that he rose again, and they were indwelled. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were dominated by the Holy Spirit, and they went and preached to the nations and told others that Jesus was alive. And so much of what happens in the church today has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is vital to our Christian walk and our obedience, and without him, look at me, without the Holy Spirit, we are without Christ, Let me let that settle for a second. You can know everything in the Bible and misunderstand that unless the Spirit indwells you, you do not have Christ because it is the Spirit who gives you the eyes to see Jesus for who he is. So verse 17, the Spirit of truth, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but Jesus says, you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. The spirit of truth who revealed that truth in the written and recorded word of God. See, we say this a lot. The will of God is revealed in the word of God written by the spirit of God. The world does not know him. And Jesus differentiates here. As Pastor Mike taught on the exclusivity of Christ last week, Jesus says in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Mike pointed out that this was not a set of directions, but a person that was the way, and it's Jesus. Well, now in, 14, in John fourteen seventeen, the way is now stating that those who are not included in the way do not know the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, the advocate. They do not have the helper. They are on their own spiritually. And by implication, we know that those who are included in Christ are the church, and they have the Holy Spirit indwelling in them. So let's be clear, we're gonna talk about the church, we're not gonna talk about Church of the Valley only, we're gonna talk about the Big C Church, which is all the churches that include Christ's bride that were all together, and being a part of God's church, the Big C Church, has nothing to do with your benefits, and or what you've done at all. It's simply by the receiving of Christ as your sole means of salvation and as the way, and God gifts you His Holy Spirit The third person of the Trinity who resides in you and guides you, he leads you, and he can be grieved, he can be squelched, or he can dominate you and point you to the truth of his word to help you walk in the works that God predetermined that you would walk in, Ephesians 2.10. John 14.7, the last part of it says, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Oh, this is so cool. See, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is someone you know to his disciples, But why? Because they followed Jesus. Because they were daily being sanctified and growing in their knowledge and obedience and love for Christ. Jesus says that the Spirit is with them, but he says later on, future tense, he will be in you. He was yet to indwell them. See, that happens after Jesus rises from the dead, he ascends to heaven, and he sends his Spirit But in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would reside in a temple. But through Jesus ushering in the new covenant, through a sacrificial death and victorious resurrection, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, would not reside in a temple built by human hands, but in the hearts of people. Let me show my work. Acts 17.24, Paul says in Areopagus in Greece, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And then he says to the church in Corinth, do you not not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you, ESV? I wonder what Moses thinks about believers today. You guys know Moses, he was the guy that went up the, the mountain, came down with tablets, they weren't iPads, and he comes down, and as he comes down, he, he's spoken with God, and now God has given a law that he's supposed to tell the Israelites about. And Moses lived in a time where everything he experienced, everything he did, was a foreshadowing of what was to come. See, glimpses were made of Christ, but not the full picture of Christ. Nor did the Spirit reside where the Spirit was Attainable where you could be in the presence of the Lord, except for the high priest. Once a year, we're talking about special and specific. Once a year, if the high priest cleansed himself, washed himself, confessed all his sin, he then could be ushered into the presence of the Lord on a specific day in the holiest of holies inside the temple. And even then, people weren't sure, so they tied a rope around him just in case. If he wasn't super clean and he came into the presence of the Lord, God would allow him to die. And so they would have the rope to pull him out just in case. Yet we, those of us today, who have repented of our sin, we've been going this way and all of a sudden we switch direction because we trust that God is good and we need him. Those who have repented of their sin, those who have confessed their sin and have trusted Jesus as Lord, we now can be in the presence of God. We can have direct access to God. I wonder if Moses, if he was talking to one of us today, would say something like this. Let me get this straight. You are the temple? Say what? You get direct access to God? The Spirit of God resides in you? Are you kidding me? You know about the resurrection because it already happened in your life? I wonder if Moses, if he lived on earth today, would think that believers take for granted the beauty of having God in us. I bet you he would. And Jesus says in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Commentators on this verse tend to either attribute it to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, or Jesus' resurrection, where I believe actually both can be true at the same time. Let me show you. Jesus has been speaking of the Spirit, and Jesus then says, I will not leave you as orphans. This could be assumed that he means in the Godhead, because the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that as he leaves, he will send the Holy Spirit so that the disciples will not be without God manifested in their lives. But it also could point out to what Paul points out in Romans 8. Here's what it says. This is so powerful. Romans 8, 9 through 11, Paul says to the church in Rome, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh but are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. You know when I said that if you don't have the Spirit, you don't have Jesus? I'm just quoting Paul. But if Christ is in you, verse 10, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. Whose righteousness? Jesus's. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. So if the Spirit is what will keep them from being orphans, because the Spirit resides in them, but Paul also points out that what is through the Spirit is that Jesus was resurrected. So being in Christ means you too are a part of Jesus' death. And his resurrection. And all of that is enabled by the Spirit of God who indwells in those who are God's possession. This past week I got to take our family to Big Bear in Southern California. Anyone been been to Big Bear? Pretty nice. I like it. Small town. There there was snow when we got there. It was cool. And we got to spend time with family who lived there. We got to stay at Aaron's aunt and uncle's house. They have a second house up in Big Bear, so we didn't have to rent a uh, rental, which was fantastic, pastor economy. Uh, and when we were talking with Aaron's cousins, uh, Bridget and Mark, I actually, uh, Mark and Bridget got married, so Mark's Bridget's husband, they weren't cousins when they got married. Sorry, that, that whole story, I'm messing it up. But I married them. Wow, that makes it even more, Jerry. Anyway, and so... Aaron's cousin, Bridget, and her husband, Mark, who I got to marry, have been attending. The, uh, they came and told us that they started going to a church this past Sunday, and they hadn't gone to a church in years. And they told us about the church, and, you know, of course, the first thing Aaron and I do is we go online and we start looking at the church, right, because that's what we do. It's just us. I'm sure none of you guys ever do that. <laughs> and, and so we start looking up the church, and I'm talking with Mark, and Mark said, yeah, I got invited to a prayer meeting on Tuesday morning, and I, I, I kind of want to go. And I said, hey, I'll go with you. But one thing, you can't tell them what I do for a living. And they're like, he's like, deal. I was like, sweet. So we walk into the church, and they have a table with about, I don't know, five seats. And there was like, there were four people, and they pulled out another chair for me. And as we walk in, just a few leaders around the table and they're having a conversation. We walk in, and they were so excited that two young men, I loved being called young. This was awesome. Two young men had come to the church, and we, we sat down, and we kind of shared who we were, and they didn't ask me what I did for a living, so I didn't have to lie to them, um, which was great. And they started with a devotional of someone I wouldn't ever recommend that you hear a devotional from. And so I had to kind of do this moment of, okay, that's fine. And as we started to pray, I started to listen to them pray, and I, I, started to, I found out as they were praying that uh, they were about to get a new pastor, and they hadn't met the pastor yet. According to their denomination, the denomination would bring in a new pastor, but as we were praying, I was listening to them pray, and one of the things, even though I don't think they would emphasize what we emphasize, and they were a different tradition in a lot of ways, I experienced a group of people who were dependent upon God. And not only that, they were very loving to one another. You remember just a few weeks ago, I taught on, by this all men will know that you are my disciples by the amount of times you attend church, right? Like that's what he says? (laughs) Oh, by the way you love one another. They prayed for one another's needs. And then while in prayer, I heard that they were in process of having this new shepherd, this new pastor that they hadn't met yet, they didn't know who he was, But then I started to listen to a few of these church leaders pray and ask God. Now, don't miss this. They asked God to help them not to attempt to push their own agenda, but to trust the Lord through their new pastor that they had never met. I got to be honest, guys. I started to cry. Some of you may know or remember even when myself, many of us first got here, that wasn't the case for everyone here. There were a subset of people who wanted to do church their own way and really didn't want to be led as much as they wanted to have someone to push around their agenda. But the story of Church of the Valley, how the Spirit of God has moved in this place and used messed up people like us, I got to tell them the story about how God has used this place to make much of Jesus and how some of your lives have been changed, how you've grown into the the likeness of Jesus, how marriages have come together as you've raised your children up in Christ, as college has not just become a thing that you go and do, but it's a community and experience that you get to have with other believers. I got to talk about all of you as I shared with this leadership, and they were so encouraged by everything that we got to share and, and talk about. At the end of prayer, it was funny because I I hadn't told the story yet and I was just praying and then all of a sudden one of the leaders looks at me and she goes, are you a minister? And I said, yes. She goes, I knew it! So apparently ministers pray a certain way. But what I loved was their willingness to trust God with this authority that he was bringing in and this new lead pastor that they had never met. Now remember, this passage, or this sermon, these passages aren't for the person next to you, they're for you so buckle up. Romans thirteen verses one through two says it this way: Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Nah, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. I know we want to say nah. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves deep breath I want you to hear this God is sovereign over all authority from the government over all citizens through the church over all believers parents over all children and even employers over all employees and God doesn't give an escape clause if the authorities are not competent sorry talk to David Saul was a moron The only clause you get is if the authority over you points you to be disobedient to God and his word. See, submission to authority? Oh, I feel some of you getting angry at me. That's cute. Get mad at God. He says it. Submission to authority is something God enables us to do through the Holy Spirit. So when I talk with some people and I hear them saying, well, I don't want to listen to my husband. I don't want to have to listen to my boss. I don't want to have to do this. What I'm hearing is not what the Holy Spirit does in people. The Holy Spirit actually enables us to be submissive. Jesus was submissive. Man, I'm going to get some emails. Hallelujah. I don't get enough emails, apparently. Submission to authority is something that God expects of us, and he even gives us his spirit so that we can obey. Let, Let me show you, Romans 8, 7, The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Ephesians 2, 1 through 2, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. But then look at what happens in the book of Acts as Peter and John have helped uh, heal. God has healed a lame man through them, and they have been taken up by the Sanhedrin, the, the governing authorities. The apostles were brought in, Acts five twenty seven and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in, his na- in this name, Jesus. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. Man, some of us use liberty with that verse. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. Wow! God exalted him to his own right hand as the prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. The Holy Spirit isn't something that was earned when you did enough good. He is the person of the Trinity that is given to you when by grace through faith you trust Jesus as your sole means of salvation. So, see that? This is not a write it down. I talk way too fast for you to write that down. That's a, You take your phone and take a picture. Very good, Zorik. That's exactly what you do. And through Him, we can obey the Lord. Through Him, we can walk in the Spirit. We can make disciples. We can squelch the flesh rather than the Spirit. We can be dominated by the Spirit, but it is a work of God for us to obey, enabled, and empowered by God, the Holy Spirit. Now, I know some of you, you're like, man, I have no church background. Who's this Holy Spirit? Some people call Him the Holy Ghost. I think that's a bad interpretation. Boo! That's not what He does, okay? He is the Spirit of God, and He exists, and He's part of the Godhead, and so many times we put him away, and we forget who he is, and he is active in our lives. Verse 19, before long the world will not see me anymore, Jesus says, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. Before long the world will not see him. Jesus will die on the cross. He will rise from the dead, but then he will ascend to heaven, but he won't leave them. God in the Son will send God in the Spirit so that Jesus doesn't leave or forsake us. As a theologian, John Calvin, put it, we will know that Jesus is with us, not through the eyes of the flesh, but through the eyes of faith, through the Spirit. Jesus says because he lives, they will live. This could be understood as a precursor of what was about to happen as he would rise from the dead and because he lives, we will live. Listen, there is no more important moment and event in history than from Good Friday to Easter. His death on the cross paid the debt that we owed, and his resurrection was our receipt to let us know it was paid in full. And you know why we can live with eternity in mind? We don't have to live as if this is all we get or attempt to hold on to our youth because Jesus rose from the dead. Hallelujah. And if that is true, we will too. We may die, but it's just a speed bump unto eternity because this life that we're living now does not last forever, but the second one does, and we were made for that life. And that life is what you and I ought to be expectant of and live in. And if we are, we can live this life full of faith that God will come through on his promises. I've said it before, but based on God's past performance, we can trust in his future promises. And he says that because he lives, we will live, and I will put all my eggs in that Easter basket, pun intended. Okay, no punny people in here, that's fine. <laughs> Verse 20, on that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Say what? What? on that day could refer to anywhere from his resurrection to the resurrection on the last day where we will all be included in Christ. But either way, Jesus is in the Father. You and I, if we've trusted Christ, have access to the Father and are empowered to grow into the likeness of the Son through the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. And he is in us. Do you realize that God has given you what Jesus deserves? Like, has this come to mind this week? That God has given you what Jesus deserves. See, my heart breaks that he had to take on what I deserve, but there is nothing that brings me more joy than realizing because of God's goodness, through his grace, we receive what Jesus is due, which is right standing with the Father. Wow. Gospel. We didn't earn it. Jesus did. And he gifts it to us, and he gives us his spirit so we don't have to take for granted what God has done verse 21 Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. See, to have God's commands is to properly be instructed by God's word. Jesus says in the Great Commission before he ascends to heaven he says, "And teach them." He's telling his disciples, "And teach them to obey everything I have commanded." Matthew 28:19. To have the instructions of the Lord and obey them, Jesus says, this is what those who love me do. I know how religion misinterprets this verse. They read it as if to say, in order for God to love you or I, we must obey God. That isn't what he says here though. He says that those who claim they love him, the evidence of that is how they view his commands. Tim Keller, great theologian, now it's a true sermon because I'm quoting him, it says, religion says, I obey, therefore I am accepted by God. But the gospel says, I am accepted by God through Christ, therefore I obey. It's a subtle difference, but it's a big one. If you do his commands, you believe that he is the master. If you refuse to, you can say till you're blue in the face that you love him and believe in him, but your actions tell a different story. The one who loves me will be loved by my father. I don't know if there's a better example of a father's love and acceptance than this. Listen, I'm a father, and I can't help but have extreme emotions. I hope you're tracking with me here. To have extreme emotions towards people who feel and treat my kids a certain way. So I'm going to save you the negative versions because I could go on all day. But if you love my kids... If you sacrifice yourself for my children, if you give up your time, your treasure, your talents to encourage my kids towards Jesus, I, as the father of my children, can't help but love you. And Jesus says that those who love him, the son, that the father then loves them. Because Jesus is our access to the father, and Jesus will show himself. The Spirit's work will be to remove the veil from their eyes so that they can see that Jesus is the point. Verse 22, the funniest verse in this whole passage. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot. All right, real quick. That's a really terrible way to be explained in Scripture. All right, just putting that out there. That's even worse than doubting Thomas because it doesn't actually say doubting Thomas. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? What a wonderful question, Judas, not Iscariot, just asked. But see, the irony is this question still being asked today. Let me rephrase it, because we've all heard it before. If God saves people, why doesn't he save everyone? The real question, honestly, church, and I hate to, I'm not going to pull any punches here. I'm going to start not pulling any punches. The real question is, if we're all enemies of God, why would he save any of us? But look at Jesus' response. Because at first glance, it doesn't look like he answers the question at all. (laughs) Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Sounds almost redundant to what he said just prior to the question, as if to be taken as, hey, Judas, not a scarlet, you missed what I said, so let me say it again. But he isn't using, he isn't doing that. He's using his example of those who can and can't see. He says that those who obey are the ones who can see Jesus for who he is, and then he goes on to verse 24, and he says, Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. But those who cannot see me, they show themselves by their unwillingness to obey my commands. Wow. Those who don't love can't obey. The fact is there are people that look like they obey, They seem to do the right things. They look religious. They may even seem worshipful, but we look at the action. Here's what we do. We look at the action and we attempt to interpret the heart. Don't we? Can we be real? We see someone doing something, we're like, well, obviously they're not saved. Like this is stuff we think. Just me? Wow, I messed up. I'm sorry, I need to repent. It's just me. Okay. We look at the action and attempt to interpret the heart, but you know what God does? God looks at the heart and then he interprets the action. He looks at the heart and then he interprets the action. And Jesus then points to the fact that he doesn't say this on his own. This isn't his opinion, but that this comes from the Father. Verse 25, all this I have spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. The Spirit will remind you of everything I have said to you. Okay, here's the problem with that. I'm almost 40, all right? My kids like to remind me of that all the time. And I'm almost 40, and I forget stuff all the time. Anyone who's not four, almost 40 also do this? Okay. I forget stuff. But he's not talking about, like, you know, who, who played a character in Growing Pains in 1987. That's not what he's talking about. The word from the word will not be forgotten by the disciples because the Spirit will remind them. And the New Testament, as we know it, is being foreshadowed in this moment. As Jesus has been with them, but they will need God's Spirit to be able to write down, to speak and teach the truth of what God had said and allowed them to experience. The Holy Spirit will teach you all things. This becomes the junk drawer for all truth. We think that any lesson we come up with is God's truth. And even though it's okay to understand sayings, it's okay to have life hacks that may help you understand to do things better. We ought not look anywhere but what God says about Himself to be what we're sure about God. I got an email or a text last night from Sarah who does my slides, and she said, Your, the way you said that makes no sense. So I said it a different way. So here we go. We shouldn't look anywhere but to the Word of God to be sure about what God is like. That's where we get to know what he's like, through the word of God, but why? Because let's be real, church, all of us have a hard time always knowing what is the Holy Spirit and what isn't. Can we be real about this? I'm sorry, I'm asking for a lot of participation. Can we be honest that we don't always know when it's God? No one living today has perfect discernment, and if we claim we do, we've already proven we don't. But trusting God's complete and perfect, as it was originally written, Word as our answer sheet for who God is based on what He has done and what He says about Himself will always have the final word and be the final answer to the believer. Wow, I'm pretty excited about this. And I don't want us to miss this because so often we just, oh, well, that was the Holy Spirit. No, that was someone coughed. Relax. And the Apostle Peter says it this way in the Word of God, led by the Holy Spirit. He says, Second Peter chapter 1, 16 through 18, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. You know, an eyewitness matters. I don't want to hear about the war from anyone who didn't fight in the war. I want to hear about the war from someone who was there. He received, verse 17, honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain, this is the transfiguration. And then he says in 19, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable and you will do well to pay attention to it. That's really good advice, church. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter points to what you hold in your hand, Or maybe what app you have on your phone, which was documented on parchments, which was copied by scribes, did not have its origin in human mastermind, but it was orated and documented and protected over thousands of years so that you and I could know God based on what he says about himself, rather than guessing or using our feelings to be the judge. Wow. Verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You remember how what I asked you guys to do to your partner, the second thing I asked you to say, that this passage is for me? Here we go. This was a farewell statement that many in this culture would give to one another. But Jesus saying peace, a word that implies prosperity, was not a piece of empty words like, have a great day, or like in our yearbooks, have a great summer, you know, like that's not what this is. But this is the presence of God as he would send the Holy Spirit to provide all that the disciples needed to obey. Peace was the Hebrew word for shalom. Say shalom. Man, Hebrew words are fun to say. And shalom would be theirs in God as He sends His Spirit to indwell in them. They would have His presence in a fullness of relationship. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, Paul says it this way, Do not be anxious about anything. We've seen this on the bottom of in and out Cups. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Whoa, I don't know why I yelled at and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God's presence, His shalom, our right standing, and His peace is what ought to combat our anxiety and fear. And so, I'm going to be real with us. I met with my, my biblical counselor two weeks ago, okay? And in case you're wondering, I'm very pro-counseling as long as the counselor knows the word of God specifically. And even if they don't know the word of God, as long as you know that they don't know the word, but if they come to teach and they're not really teaching the text in context, sometimes that can be dangerous. But I love my biblical counselor. He's a good friend, actually. And as we were talking, I was telling him about some of the stress that I had been dealing with over the past few months. And he made this point that was really good. He said, Tim, you can't let getting rid of all your anxiety and stress be your ultimate goal. Because this world is sinful. And stress and fear are things that it's constantly functioning in. It's broken. But we're not of this world. And God has given us his spirit, not only, but also for, for lack of a better term, a way to manage our anxiety. It is through the Holy Spirit, us being redeemed and sealed by Him, that we have access to God the Father through belief in God the Son, that the Spirit of God may known to us so that we can rest in our shalom with Him, our wholeness in relationship with, with God because of God's gift in His Son and through His Spirit. So when Jesus says, Do not let your hearts be troubled or agitated. Be anxiety-dominated. Do not be afraid. He can say that this is possible because he sends his spirit to not only remind us of his word, but to dominate us with his presence. Verse 28, you heard me say, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. The disciples did love Jesus, but mixed in with their love was a human selfishness. Did you guys know you have that with people? that wanted Jesus to stay rather than to be where he belonged, which is in heaven with the Father. So as Jesus says, if you loved me, you'd want me to be with the Father, he then says he's going to the Father whom is greater than he. But I, I can't skip this. This isn't about Jesus being a lesser God, as some heretics have attempted to persuade others in interpreting this verse but about the fact that Jesus had descended into this world to be the mediator between man and God. He had left the presence of the Father to be here with us. And John Calvin put it this way, and it has nothing to do with predestination, so relax. Christ does not here make a comparison between the divinity of the Father and His own nor between his own human nature and the divine essence of the Father, but rather between his present state and the heavenly glory to which he would soon afterwards be received, as if he had said, You wish to detain me in this world, but it is better that I should ascend to heaven. Why? Because he would send a Spirit. Verse 29, I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. Jesus, again, as we have heard him say this in the presence of his disciples, he says this before, so when it takes place, they would once again realize he's not just some ordinary rabbi, but he's the extraordinary son of God who not only called the shot, but he controlled the outcome. Verse 30, I will not say much more to you for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me. Jesus is making known that he has said almost all that he intends to tell the disciples before he dies and rises again and then implies that the enemy is coming, meaning his crucifixion is at hand, but I highly doubt the disciples understood that. As those watching Jesus be crucified could not comprehend that the plan of God was to defeat death, was for God in the flesh to take death on personally. Wow. And yet Satan had no hold over Jesus, because unlike all of us, Jesus was not polluted or overcome by sin. Verse 31, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. Yet Satan, if he knew it or not, was a pawn in God's plan to show the world that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice and the perfect obeyer to the Father by being willing to obey unto death on the cross. Worship team, why don't you come on up, please. Let me finish with Paul's words to the church in Philippi. He says in verse 8 of Philippians 2, he says, In being found in appearance as a man, he, being Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. But what did this obedience afford him? Verse 9, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess or acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." So it was through Jesus' death and resurrection that you and I could now have access to God and His perfection by receiving the gift of Jesus' perfect sacrifice gifted to us and sealed in every believer by His Spirit. That's some good news, church.